The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Hello, this is Dr. Gordon Atherley. Uh, welcome to Family Caregivers Unite. I'm your host. I'm, by background, a physician. I was trained in Britain, as I'm sure you can tell from my accent. I worked for many years in Canada and also with various colleagues in the U.S. I'm retired from medical practice, and I'm working now in research in healthcare and development of various things. Now, as far as family caregiving goes, I see this as one of the most important supports for healthcare right across the world, right now. In fact, I'm an activist for social caregiving, which explains the, for family caregiving rather, which explains the name of the show, Family Caregivers Unite. In the U.S. and Canada, the healthcare system, systems rely on the unpaid help of family caregivers. Um, family caregivers are the people who provide, obviously, care to family members suffering from health challenges or suffering health challenges. AARP and its Canadian counterpart, CARP, which Canadians call CARP, advocate for U.S. boomers and Canadian Zoomers, respectively. And we're welcoming today as guests. AARP's Senior Vice President, Dr. Susan Reinhardt, and CARP's Vice President Advocacy, Susan Eng. They're going to discuss the ways in which their organizations support family caregivers and family caregiving, the things that they advocate for on behalf of family caregivers, and the changes that they want to see in their respective healthcare systems. I'd add before I introduce them, a little bit of background on both of them. Dr. Reinhardt is a Senior Vice President of AARP. She directs AARP's Public Policy Institute. This is the focal point for public policy research and analysis. Um, it's, a national, it's a national resource. It's, it's basically, um, she's working in two ways, I think, as a national resource. One is as chief strategist for the Center to Champion Nursing in America at AARP, and that's the national resource and technical center created to ensure that America has the nurses it needs. Ms. Eng is vice president advocacy for CARP, which advocates for 14 million or more Canadian Zoomers. She's a lawyer. She's a prominent activist 
with a strong record of advocacy. She's a frequent media commentator. She also serves on the governing council of the University of Toronto. She's a member of the board of directors of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and she's a director of the Yi Hong Community Wellness Centre for Geriatric Care. Welcome to the show, Dr. Reinhardt and Ms. Eng. Thank you very much. I'd like to ask you both uh, to, to speak more about your, your work as individuals and fill in any background which I haven't covered. I'm going to start, please, by um, asking Dr. Reinhardt to, uh, to respond to that. Dr. Reinhardt, please. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me uh, today with my colleague from Canada. Uh, I am a nurse by background, and I came to ARP about three years ago because I thought this organization would have all of the tools that uh, we need to really advance issues like caregiving, health care, economic security for the almost 40 or about 40 million members that AARP has. And uh, caregiving is very, very high on that list. Uh, We have half of our members are between the ages of 50 and 65, and the other half are older than that which means that uh, since most caregivers are just around 50, uh, they are caring for people who are about 75-plus, that this is the perfect issue for an organization like AARP that does the policy research that I am really in charge of here, but also advocacy and education and volunteerism that the organization can do at a national and a state and local levels. So my interest has been in for many years, as I said, I'm a nurse, I'm a researcher, and a policy person, is trying to take that experience that caregivers have and translate it into getting the help that they need to do what they do every day. Thanks very much. Mazang. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for your focus on a very important issue. Um, My background is both in advocacy and as a tax lawyer, as you mentioned, and so my premise has been, first of all, standing on the shoulders of other people like Susan Reithart, who have done so much work in the area of caregiving. Before I came to um, CARP two years ago now, um, I had only the uh, experience of working with a nursing home, and so understood some of the issues dealing with the frail elderly, but less so with uh, regards to aging at home, but I came to recognize the importance, that continuum of care that's necessary to allow people the dignity of their stay at home and to make sure that any kind of medical interventions they required that could be carried out within the home, that they be done there rather than in the nursing home setting. This despite the fact that when we started the nursing home, our focus was to make sure that it was truly a home away from home, that the atmosphere was such that there was a lot of rights for the residents, that the people had a great deal of freedom, that they had what they needed, they had personalized care, uh, that it was customized to what they personally needed rather than un- under some kind of uh, one rule fits all. And from that, you see the need for a lot of people in this generation of what, what you properly call Zoomers, boomers with a Zip, we like to say, because they're not yesterday's grandmothers. They are today's, you know, people who have grown up through their 60s and 70s who are used to self-determination. They want the level of freedom that they've always had. They want the system to bend to their needs, not that they should simply go from being at their homes and independent and suddenly whenever they need have any kind of medical challenge, 
that they suddenly be put into a formal institution. So it's that in that gap that is a, is a critical need and a preference for this generation of people. And the, our membership is very modest by comparison to AARP. We have 350,000 members across the country, and our membership split would be about the same. Uh, most of our people are retired, and uh, the estimate of the number of caregivers in Canada runs to four or five million people. So it is a challenge. And indeed, several years ago, when um, Roy Romano was given the task of assessing the future of our health care system, he said the next essential service was going to be home care recognizing the challenges challenges of the demographic and the fact that the public health care budget simply cannot cope unless there is the contribution of the family caregiver. Thank you very much. Going back just for a moment to Dr. Reinhardt, please. You, your organization has just been party to, or partner with, a very interesting study. Um, you partnered with the MetLife Foundation, and you came up with a whole lot of very interesting statistics. But one of them was back actually in the headline, which is that almost one-third of the U.S. adult population plays a caregiver role. Um, that is to say it accounts for 65, 66 million caregivers. Now, of those caregivers, do they all fall into the what I'll call the demographic of your of AARP, or do some of them lie outside it? Some of them do lay outside of it. This is the first time that we have done a study that included caregivers of children, and that would be children with mental health issues, uh, with um, autism, for example, developmental disabilities, and we wanted to include them so we had as broad a picture of caregiving as possible. So you're right, the study that we just released with MetLife is called Caregiving in the United States 2009, and it is the most comprehensive exam and, uh, study of to date that we have of caregiving in America. Thanks. Mazang, um, first of all, do those statistics um, correspond, you think, with the Canadian situation that you're seeing? And um, can you point us to any important studies that are coming out in Canada or have already come out? Well, there have been a couple that uh, they, they haven't been fully studied quite as much here, but there are a few important factors. First of all, they found that um, nearly uh, one in five people over the age of 45 are performing caregiving responsibilities. They do I underscore the fact that the vast majority of the people care carrying on caregiving are women. And the impact of caregiving on women, both from their child-rearing years to the time that they're looking after older relatives, does have a severe impact on their retirement security. So it's coming out the other end on an economic basis. And uh, the issue for us is, of course, is to make sure that this issue of caregiving and family support actually makes it into advocacy. And, and into the public uh, discourse. And what I mean by that is oftentimes a social services issue, such as caregiving 
continues to be for some people, in some people's minds, needs to make it into the big leagues. And that's why CARP has insisted on adding the, the informal uh, health care system, that is caregiving as part of that, as the fourth pillar of retirement security, something that the World Bank has done. So while we're talking about pension reform, we introduced the fourth pillar of retirement security being that of the informal health care system, including as a primary focus, family caregiving. And this is one of the ways in which we try to make sure that it becomes a solution to a larger problem rather than something that, you know, somehow people feel it's a luxury to look after family caregivers. In addition, what we're finding now with the health care budget unable to meet the demands of a of an aging population that will want to have all kinds of medical support, but not necessarily in an institution, that uh, family caregiving allows for a major diversion of demand on the formal health care system. So if we frame it that way for us at CARP, we find that that way we can introduce the issue into the public discourse rather than leaving it waylaid as it has been to date. Thank you. Dr. Reinhardt, would you say that this concept of uh, the informal healthcare system also works in the U.S. I have to ask you to be fairly brief on this because we're up against the tyranny of time. Please. Uh, yes. Uh, well, we know that caregivers do spend more than $5,000 a year on uh, out-of-pocket expenses in addition to everything else they have to do. So uh, my colleague in pointing out that there is an economic consequence for family caregivers is absolutely correct, and it can affect their retirement security, which is uh, going to affect not just them, but their families in general. That's a very key point. Mm -hmm. Now, we do have to take a, a break. Um, that goes with this, uh, this work. Um, the, the break is short. I just remind you that this is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and then my guests are senior executives with um, ARP's um, organization and CARP, that is CARP's organization, respectively Dr. Susan Reinhardt and Ms. Eng. And you're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, and please stay with us. Uh, we'll talk to you back in a moment. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you ready to learn all about NASCAR from an insider's perspective? Join Eddie DeHaan every week for the NASCAR Insider. It's an interactive look at the world of NASCAR from the drivers to the crew chiefs. You'll hear from top flight NASCAR guests that the other shows only wish they could have. Hear about last week's recap, this week's news, and more. Call in to interact with Eddie and his guests every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, exclusively on the Power of Motorsports channel. Have questions about wind power? Listen for the TLG Wind Power Hour with Terry from TLG Wind Power Products. He'll cover the ins and outs of wind energy with you, whether you're a do-it-yourselfer or want a ready-made product. Let Terry give you the know-how and understanding of making wind energy work for you. Terry will share decades of hands-on experience so that you don't have to learn about wind power the hard way. The TLG Wind Power Hour, live every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. 
What does it take to succeed in America today? In this changed world, success requires a new way of thinking, a new way of doing things, and a new strategy of being and becoming. Benny Harris can take you from the brink of possibility to the path of infinite probability. He'll help you learn to rely on and believe in your unlimited power and potential. As a life success consultant, Benny can help you make the quantum leap from ordinary to extraordinary. What it takes to succeed in America today with your host, Benny Harris. Listen Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at mymonami.com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, AARP's Dr. Susan Reinhardt and CARP's Ms. Susan Eng. Now, the questions that I'm going to start now are the type of family caregivers that you particularly focus on in the two organizations and the challenges or what you know of the challenges that these particular caregivers are facing. Now, we've already discussed one or two of them, like the financial ones, but I think it might be useful to revisit those uh, when we come to it. So, um, Ms. Ryan... Dr. Reinhardt, first of all, who typically are the family caregivers that you're looking at and what challenges do they face in family caregiving? Well, typically it is a 50-year-old woman who's taking care of a 77-year-old woman, usually her mother. It looks a little different by ethnic group so that on average African-American caregivers are slightly younger, about age 48, and they're taking care of a slightly younger mother and even younger for Hispanics. Um, They are closer to 40, 43. So it varies a little bit, but on average, all of these caregivers are spending about four years providing assistance to their loved ones. Right. That mirrors what we're seeing here in Canada. The, there are, for example, some, some level of assistance that anticipates six months of support, but in fact, much of the caregiving is on average, and our number is about three years of caregiving. Um, it does fall on women more, but more and more men are taking up the responsibilities, which is interesting. Um, they, 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 about a quarter of Canadians reported that they had re- re- cared for a family member as well, and most of these are family members, although one of the issues that we're raising with, uh, with our work is to broaden the category of informal caregiver to include people who are not family members. You know, in the urban setting, sometimes uh, when people are away from their own families, that uh, their neighbors, uh, work colleagues, church groups, and so on tend to be uh, tend to step in, and and that is a, that is a good thing, and it should be something that should be encouraged. Okay, let's just talk about the uh, what I call the ethnic uh, questions that arise. Um, I was talking recently to a woman who's. Um, um, background is from India, and um, she, her mother now lives with her in, in Canada. And she was talking about the influence of 
culture in the sense of um, expectations, in the sense of things that are considered appropriate and inappropriate. Well, I, w- I wonder, th- this can be a tricky matter, I know, but I wonder if, um, first of all, Dr. Reinhardt, you'd like to comment on how you approach these, what I'll call cultural differences. I do believe there are cultural differences in uh, expectations, as you put it, a sense of familial responsibility is more of the sociology term of it. An interesting point that we found in our study is that more than half of caregivers who are taking care of someone who is at least 50 years of age felt that they did not have a choice in taking on this responsibility. Now, we didn't spend a lot of time probing on that. That could be another study. What does that mean? I didn't have a choice because my my cultural background says that I must do this. Is it I didn't have a choice because what else would happen to my mother or father if it weren't for me? But there's a general feeling for more than half of those who are caregivers that uh, this is something they have to do. Mm-hmm. We had the same kind of situation when we created the nursing home. It was considered a terrible shame when we first asked people if they wanted to create a Chinese language based uh, nursing home. That you know, it was the important point when people get to the stage of being a frail elderly, they regress in their ability to adapt to their you know circumstances. So if their first language was not English, then they revert back to being able, uh, unable to speak English well, and uh, they felt isolated in the general nursing homes or the hospitals and so on. So that was a real need that we identified, and we and our hardest target, unfortunately, was the community itself, who uh, wanted to uphold the cultural stereotype especially in the Chinese community, that we look after our elders, that it would be a terrible shame to uh, shirk those kinds of responsibilities. And so what we had to do was to send out an anonymous survey through the community, which came out with uh, the answers that while people wanted to be able to look after their parents at home, they actually could not cope. They had jobs. They didn't know how to uh, handle uh, dialysis, for example. They didn't know what the dietary responsibilities were. They did not know how to deal with a person with incontinence problems. And they were under a great deal of stress, and they were suffering in silence. So when we fed that information back to the community and said, look, in order for you to trust us, we promise, uh, you know, a first-class home, a home away from home, you will be proud to have your parent in our home. And it took a lot of convincing to get people out of the trap, in fact, of their own cultural expectations of themselves, as a, and in, indeed the stereotype that society had of some families. Indeed, the, um, the, the needs are, of course, the same for everybody. Uh, the social and community imperative needs to be addressed so that people seek and get the kind of support that they actually need. I'm going to ask you now really a question that flows from what you've both just been saying, but I'd like you to to put in your experience in some kind of order of, say, the top three most challenging things that family caregivers uh, experience. And then we, we, we could comment a little bit on how you think they should be supported so of the, the caregiving challenges, and I'll, I'll go to Mazang first of all, that you've just been describing, mm-hmm. which are the most challenging? Top the most three? challenging is, is uh, first of all, not having the information about knowing what to do. 
you know, they, there is a real lack of uh, information and support for people trying to figure out just what do I do next? You know, are there uh, public uh, uh, home care workers available? What should I do? What's the need? If the person has any kind of emotional challenge, how do I deal with it? So the first and absolute most important need is to settle their minds as, you know, am I doing the wrong thing? Is, is this person in danger? Will I make it worse? The second aspect we're finding is a high level of stress, emotional stress, uh, health-related stress, simply of trying to juggle those kinds of questions in their mind, the daily uh, demands, as well, of course, the financial stress. And, of course, the third is financial stress. And in terms of dealing with each of those things, we do recommend, of course, um, a certain amount of uh, information, which people are seeking now more and more on the Internet, and they are getting that information. There needs to be much more in terms of geriatric training for all the types of social services, not just medicine, nurses, of course, and, of course, uh, people in the general social services to understand what the needs are and to be able to deliver that to the average family member who has to get their their loved one home from the hospital after uh, an acute event. So those are the, the, the major issues. And, of course, we recommend some substantive financial so- support uh, for the family caregiver and respite care. Thank you. Dr. Reinhardt, what do you see as the top three? Uh, well, I, just um, a little more context. You have to remember that usually it's about three out of four caregivers are also working. And this is another job. It's another 20 hours on top of the other job that they have. So the, my colleague saying they need more information, she's absolutely right. They're juggling their, their jobs. They're juggling their families. And, uh, and at the same time, putting in another 20 hours every week of assistance. So it's, um, it's quite a daunt, and we're saying over four years. So this isn't just something you're going to be doing for a couple of months, and then you, you know, just sort of plow through it, and <laughs> I'll be okay. But it's year in, year out, and it changes. It's not as if the situation is stable. Sometimes they're in the hospital. Sometimes uh, the, the person themselves is depressed and needs even more of your attention. So that constant monitoring is a top priority in all the studies that we have ever shown. It's the navigating what is going on, and it's interacting with professionals. We have another study that we have been working here uh, called Professional Partners Supporting Family Caregivers. And what we have found over the last couple of years is that family caregivers do not feel that they are supported by nurses, by social workers, by physicians. They usually feel either ignored or uh, in some cases that they have been treated in a hostile manner whereas the professionals believe that they are doing a fine job (laughs) and do not realize Mm -hmm. that they need to pay more attention to this person who makes it possible for that ill family member to get through the day. Well, absolutely, and that's why, you know, our CARP strategy is three-pronged. One, that there be financial support. Secondly, that there be workplace protection because of the length of time and the impact and the, the need for flexibility and accommodation in the workplace. And finally, that some kind of proper integration with the formal health care system, where on one hand the professionals recognize and support the work of the family caregiver and provide them with information, but also training so that they can carry out the activities. Let me just ask you both this question. The UK um, believes 
and perhaps does, that it um, includes the informal, the family caregiver, within the healthcare system. It pays them not a huge amount of money, but it does pay them a little bit of money. Um, but it also encourages them, and this we're seeing in North America as well, I think, just starting, to see them as um, people who work not only with the person receiving care, but also with, shall we say, the family doctor or the nurse practitioner uh, who are providing the care. Because sometimes it's the family caregiver, isn't it, who first realizes that something isn't working properly and therefore can be an important resource for the, um, for the professional caregiver. Now, I've, I know to some extent I've answered my own question, but what do you think about that, that relationship between the... Um, family caregiver and the professional caregiver. Well, that's important from two perspectives. First of all, of course, including them as part of the formal health care team uh, immediately deals with the issue of integrating their work and supporting their work. But it has the added function of elevating their social status, if you will, into something that is a net contributor to the public good rather than somehow someone who was unlucky enough to have an ill parent, you know. Excuse me. That kind of uh, refocus of the value of their work, I think, is equally important. Mazang, do you, what do you think? I absolutely agree with that, and, and I think in the United States and throughout the world, we need to look at uh, the UK and Germany. Also, does a pretty good job as well as recognizing these family caregivers. And there's often more than one in a family, uh, but that these people are making it possible for care to be given outside of institutions, outside of the hospital, and between the hospital and home in those transitions. And they need to um, understand that privacy is a good thing, that people deserve privacy, but the patient wants to give permission to have their family caregiver involved. They just need to be asked. So it has to be very proactive in how we are working with family caregivers. Right. And I thought that I, I heard that the U.K. is in the process of creating a pension fund for caregivers. I don't know where that's at at the moment, but it addresses the other issue at the other end, which is while people spend the money looking after their older relatives, they are not saving money. Indeed, in Canada, a group of financial advisors, investors group, did a survey just earlier in the month, I think, that talks about that very point. That it, is a key, it is a key point, that. Mm-hmm. Um, on account of spending that money, they have less to invest with them. Yes. Now, it is coming up to time for our break. Um, so I'm going to say, remind you that um, my two guests are senior executives with AARP and CARP, respectively, uh, Dr. Susan Reinhardt and Ms. Eng. I'm Dr. Gordon Atherley, and you're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. And please stay with us. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Holistic living is nutrition for not just your body, but your mind and your soul. Holistic nutrition goes far beyond the foods that we eat or the supplements that we take. Discover natural means to heal your body and regain your innate healing powers. That's Holistic Living with Tina Marie Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tune in for your weekly dose of good holistic living. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. We some hard hitters, we some hard hitters. Hard Hitting Radio is a new kind of sports and entertainment show. Your hosts are NFL veterans Mark McMillan and co-host Byron Evans. It's an hour of hater-free radio every week. You'll hear interviews with top athletes, celebrities, coaches, and fans. It's humor, hits, and conversation. Hard Hitting Radio is on with McMillan and Evans. Listen Fridays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Sports Network. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at mymonami.com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Well, welcome to our listeners, back to Family Caregivers Unite, and to our two guests, AARP's Dr. Susan Reinhardt and CARP's Ms. Susan Eng. I'm Dr. Gordon Atherley. My question for both of them now is, does there come a time when the family caregiver is no longer able to cope with all that family caregiving requires? And if you do think that, when is that time and what are the things that bring it on? Um, Dr. Reinhardt, first, please. Well, I would say there are two different ways to look at it. One is the more chronic, things are getting more difficult, there's unrelenting stress. Often it's because they're family member is wandering, they're up at night, and therefore they can't get sleep, they have difficult behaviors, things like incontinence. So that's one of those It's getting more and more difficult. Then on the other side, there can come a time where things have been okay, but there's a crisis of some sort. The person has a stroke or has, falls and fractures a hip, and it's going to be a whole other set of medical and nursing tasks that the family feels overwhelmed with. Well, absolutely. And <clears throat> what we're finding, we're getting calls from people. One example was a horrible example of a man who had previously broken his hip and then had another crisis and was sent home from the hospital without uh, any kind of support whatsoever with the result that when they got to their home after coming home in a taxi, 
he was obliged to climb up his front stairs on his hands and knees because his wife couldn't possibly, did not have the strength to lift him up safely. And they had no assistance to get him home. That's at a very, you know, at, at, the, at the very base level, you need to think that through. The system needs to help think that through, that the person has to get at least that basic level of care in the first instance. Then, of course, all of the same issues of the unrelenting stress, of course, it's going to take its toll. And at some point, the example I just gave had a person who couldn't physically provide the help even had she wanted to. And, and when you get beyond your ability to actually deal with the medical interventions, then you're really stuck. And, of course, there is the cost. So the system needs to recognize that this is a net contribution to the public good that these people are providing and provide a bit of support, some intervention, and some kind of financial support. You know, I absolutely agree with that. We have, Our other studies have shown that in the United States, caregivers are providing $375 billion dollars of free care. We translate, that, we translate that in Canada. Uh, our researchers come up with the $25 billion amount in Canada as extremely modest, uh, right. at the modest end of the range of how much they contribute. So, so when we say to government, if you spend a few dollars in a caregiver allowance, for example, then you lever up that kind of unpaid labor. Absolutely. And I, I really appreciate your statements about coming home from the hospital and having to crawl up the steps. This is why every physician, every nurse, every social worker, every therapist, everybody who works with especially older adults or people with disabilities really need to think what is going to happen next to this individual. So right. here this person's in the hospital. How are they going to get downstairs and into their car and then out of their car and then up the steps? Where are they going to sleep? Is there food in the house? These are very basic thought processes that the professionals need to do. And then, as you point out, the system needs to support that. We have been advocating in the United States for something known as transitional care, where a nurse, usually an advanced practice nurse, goes into the hospital before the person's ever discharged and starts working with that individual and the family and get the medication straight, and get the equipment that they need, and then follow them home and stay with them for a good two or three months. I don't mean every day, mm-hmm. but overseeing their care and working with them, cooperating, collaboratively working with them to set up the system in the house so that the person can manage it and therefore avert the crisis where the family just can't cope. Well, that's right. Yeah. Now, can I just ask you this? Is, is it inevitable that there comes that moment when the, the, of the crisis or something happens, um, can we postpone it and can we postpone it indefinitely with the kind of things that you've just been talking about but applying them before the hip gets broken, so to speak? And are you, can you talk about warning signs? Are there people, are there signs, are there things that experience professional caregivers might see in a home that would sound the alarm bells about things perhaps going not as well as they should or even going awry. Um, Dr. Reinhardt first for that one, please. Yes. I, I don't know that it's inevitable for any, you know, given family caregiver that they will not be able to cope. It depends so much on what support they get. They need support in knowing what they're doing, especially things like medications and 
different kinds of medical tasks that they have to help. It terrifies them. I remember saying on another, at another presentation that we ask family caregivers to do things that make nursing students tremble. <laughs> and I Very really mean, I mean it sincerely. The first time I had to give an injection, my hand shook so hard that my instructor had to just, you know, sort of pat my back and calm me down. And yet we expect family caregivers to give insulin and, you know, change dressings and do tube feedings and all kinds of things. So if they get the, the support, the instruction, and they have a phone number to call, they can, if they have a question, I'm worried, they can call their doctor, their nurse practitioner, their clinic, whatever is their health system. That's the ideal that, I, you know, I have a question, can you help me manage this situation? And then if possible that a nurse or someone can come out to the house and see what's going on and see if any additional help is needed. Or maybe it's a matter of reassuring the person that what they're doing is right on target. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that can be uh, translated or transferred from the experts. For example, my mother is now uh, blind with macular degeneration. And at, in the early days when that first happened, she was in an absolute state of panic. So the volunteers from the Canadian National Institute for the Blind came along and pointed out that if she were to put these little plastic bubbles on her stove, she would know whether or not the stove was off or not by mm-hmm. you know, uh, turning the switch to the bubble. That cleared up her panic around burning herself down, uh, burning her house down. It's a simple plastic bobble that she stuck on the stove. Now, it's that kind of information I didn't have in my head, but the, the Institute did. And providing that one tiny piece of information was enough to clear out her panic about that one particular issue and allow her to stay at home without yeah. having somebody else live with her. So it's that, you know, sometimes the intervention is as modest as that. Other times it's going to be far more uh, serious, of course, but the point is is that if we take a fairly comprehensive approach to the whole story and to say, how do we prevent the fall in the first place? How do we prevent medication mistakes? Uh, for example, these blister packs that are created by pharmacists that count out all your pills and set them alongside instructions and so on can prevent a lot of, uh, you know, the kind of medical, um, the medication problems that we find. And yet the public health care system refuses to fund that in any significant way. So when you're penny wise and pound foolish, you can create situations which don't need to be there. Let me just ask you both this. Um, who actually benefits? If all, of, if all of these things we're talking about uh, do keep um, people uh, in their own homes supported by their family caregivers, who or what part of our societies benefit from that? Well, first of all, the actual patient benefits. And there have been a number of studies that show that a person who is supported by a family member lives longer and has a better quality of life than someone who lives alone or has to go to an institution because they have no other support. So first of all, that person, society, certainly we talked about the economic consequences uh, of $375 billion in the United States. I think you said $25 billion mm-hmm. in Canada, that that is free care that family members are giving. Mm-hmm. And in addition, of course, the largest piece of this is is uh, the social glue that we build when people look after each other, and the system as a whole at, at that, uh, values that ethic of people looking after people and provide making it uh, easier for them to do so. You know, this uh, caregiving will never be easy, 
but it can be made less onerous by uh, political and state intervention. This has got to be a very quick one, but do you see family caregivers helping family caregivers? That is to say, um, people who have experience, could they help people who are learning? Would you see a community there? What do you think, both of you? Am I saying first? Well, of course, uh, the whole issue of people going online to find information and guidance is already with us, so it will be nothing new. But where I think there's an opportunity is in the social networking, the forums that that often uh, appear in various and different websites where people can share their experiences, ask each other, well, what happens when this and is this normal? Uh, Those kinds of questions that one makes them feel not alone where they share experiences and they may even have a second opinion about medical advice, which is also helpful. Now, of course, you know, always they have to be careful that, you know, they're not sharing poor advice and urban myths, but nonetheless, there's a sense of uh, sense of well-being as being part of a community virtually, if not in person. And I think that the virtual is even better than in person. Many studies have shown that when the attempts to have support groups at the workplace did not go very well mm-hmm. because that's, people go to work to escape. That's right. Now, that's a key point, and I'm afraid I'm going to have to interrupt at that point, but we, we do have a chance to go back to the general point. Um, the break, um, my two guests are um, Dr. Susan Reinhardt, um, AARP, Ms. Eng from CARP. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, and stay tuned. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. The Sports Mavericks Show redefines the elite athlete by bridging the gap between parents, athletes, and the community. Host Ida Moyer, a.k.a. the Oprah of Sports, brings to the Voice America Network original programming, balancing the pursuit of academic excellence and sports participation. The Sports Mavericks Show airs every Tuesday evening at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. Listeners will be engaged in straightforward talk, spontaneous and unscripted by the experts. Ida and her guests will explore the challenges of success and failure in sports and will help athletes and their parents navigate the transition from high school, college, and then on to the pros. We put fun back into sports and recognize role models in sports through our Sports Mavericks All-Star Award program. Tune in Tuesday evenings at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time with Ida Mouillet and the Sports Mavericks Show right here on The Voice. Voice America Sports Channel. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. 
Wielding power, shaping environments and outcomes, and making things happen are all essential characteristics of great leaders. Yet these qualities alone are not enough to ensure your success. In a complex world, how do you decide what's most important to you? In your career, your relationships, your finances, your family, in the world around you, in the whole of your life at large. Dr. Joseph Riggio, the host of Leadership Intuition, says that personal leadership, the desire to take charge of your life, is the key to creating futures that work and building a life worth living. Join Joseph as he reveals the power of uncovering and living your own personal mythology, the key to personal transformation, exquisite performance, and social influence. Learn to look inside and discover your personal mythology and unique leadership style. Go beyond conventional advice and discover your unique success blueprint on Leadership Intuitions with Dr. Joseph Riggio each Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Leadership Intuitions, power, achievement, relationships. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Averley. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and to our two guests, Dr. Susan Reinhardt and Ms. Susan Eng. Now, the question is, supposing that you as individuals are appointed by your governments to oversee the development of support for family caregiving, what things would you propose and why? Ms. Eng, first. Well, I think that you, you realize, have to recognize that people will carry on uh, looking after their loved ones in any event. What we want to do is make sure that we encourage them to do that and not replace that with, uh, nor can we afford to replace that with uh, government services. But what you want to do is encourage them by first acknowledging that they are performing a, a valuable uh, public service by providing this care and keeping people out of the public health care system by giving them a bit of financial support. It doesn't have to be complete income replacement, but it has to help them through that. We can provide some workplace protection for them so that uh, if they their job is waiting for them when they get back after weeks away looking after their loved one or on a regular basis. And finally, I think the formal health care system can turn around, turn its face towards the family caregivers and give them some kind of support, training, and respite. With the, those latter two things would cost the system next to nothing. The dollars that you might spend in a modest or even significant financial allowance would be costly, yes, but you're leaving some billions of dollars of unpaid labor. Thank you. Dr. Reinhardt. Well, I'd be delighted to accept that appointment. Thank you very much. I think that would be wonderful. Uh, well, the first thing we have been asking for are things like let's make sure every family caregiver is asked how they are doing. You can call that assessment. But in all the different programs that we have, we should make it policy that we ask the family caregiver how he or she is doing, what help they need, what training they might need, and, um, and then work to make that happen. Which brings me to the second point, 
which is to get the help. And I'm really delighted that just today President Obama uh, announced, and I think he'll be talking about this in his State of the Union address as well, but has announced that he will be uh, asking for funding of more than $100 million, about $102.5 million for a caregiver initiative. And it's divided into two parts. About half of it, $52 million, would go to more caregiver support programs, respite care, counseling, training, referrals to kinds of services that are really essential for that person at that time. Um, and then the other half is to help provide transportation. We haven't talked much about that, but just the need to get help with getting your loved one to the doctor's office, for example, is something very often that is very stressful to the caregiver. Adult daycare, in-home services, help with getting AIDS to help seniors get uh, bathed and dressed and have a meal, help them stay at home. So we're very excited. This has just been announced this morning. We couldn't be more timely. Yes. Mazeng, can I just ask you this question, which is a little bit uh, local to Canada, but we're very concerned, or a lot of people are very concerned, about states of budgets and questions of government expenditure. Do you think that the kind of changes that you've both been talking about and that it sounds as though may be coming in the U.S., uh, have a chance of getting on the political agenda here in Canada? Um, well, they have gotten on the provincial political agendas uh, in two provinces, one uh, in Manitoba and one in Nova Scotia. So there is some political recognition of the need to do for government to have a role here. I am impressed uh, by the U.S. in fact taking it up as a challenge, however, not providing any kind of allowance. Many of the structural uh, issues, uh, and it makes my point actually, that in all of the United States you only need $102 million to provide the kind of ancillary support for caregivers that we've been talking about. So the latter two prongs that of, of our strategy would not be a huge expenditure. Where there is going to be a need for some money uh, straight from the government will be in the area of financial support and uh, insurance programs out there from the private sector, but you basically pay for your own <laughs> support system, so it's a problem. So that that's where the major expenditures will have to come, and I think governments need to recognize that not only in terms of unpaid labor, there's also the productivity loss when people have to take time off work. And so if they look at the macroeconomic uh, challenges, they might be wise to put a little bit of money towards the support of family caregivers. Thank you. Dr. Reinhardt, what about this, the, the financial support aspect? Is this something that were you in that position to, um, uh, to administer the whole, the whole program that you would wish to see, or are there some objections that you uh, would have about providing financial support? There have been proposals on tax credits for family caregivers, and that was part of the announcement today that there would be an expansion of the child and dependent care tax credit, uh, which would include some family caregiving here. But in general, uh, caregivers feel that they need at least $3,000 of, of uh, cash or a break, I'll say, so that they can it can go towards some of these out-of-pocket expenses that I referred to earlier, which often includes paying for transportation and getting those extra pieces of help that their family member needs. So, yes, I think it would be very important to address those economic issues. Can I just ask you a quick, a quick technical question? What about um, things like wheelchairs, computer devices, 
and the expensive pieces of equipment that a family wouldn't otherwise buy, are, are those going to come in under the, the scheme that we've just heard about? I, uh, it, I think that the Administration on Aging, who will be partly administering this, has been trying to go towards a voucher, I would say, or cash payments or more flexibility, they call consumer-directed kinds of care, rather than, you know, we'll cover A, B, and C, here's an amount of support that we can give you. What is it you need the most? That's the general direction. That's a very German model of support for family caregivers and for consumers in general, and it's a direction that AARP very much supports. Well, in Canada, they have a tax credit for medical devices. The um, definition of what constitutes a medical device has seesawed a bit, uh, depending on the level of uh, persuasion by taxpayers as well as the suppliers of the medical devices. So it, it is not uniform, and, the, uh, and there are many things, newer devices that are more costly, which are left out. It has also created, unfortunately, a bit of a moral hazard in some respects because some things are covered by the public system, where they're actually paid for rather than simply as a tax credit for the expense. And, uh, and as a result, a lot of times the highest price model is being utilized or they're not checking and auditing the amounts that they're spending. There's no reuse of uh, a lightly used wheelchair, for example because the new ones are fully covered. So there, there is a, a great deal of um, somewhat anarchy <laughs> in an area that wastes a lot of government funds. So while there is a need to support the purchase of, of such devices, there's a great, greater need for monitoring. I'm just going to comment back to you both in this way, that what I'm hearing from you, and I think what we're all hearing from you, is that, first of all, family caregiving is now recognized um, as a major issue in healthcare administration. And I credit both of you with your efforts in achieving that because without organizations like yours and without people like you, um, these, these kind of things don't, nece don't necessarily reach the attention of the decision makers because when a family caregiver is really doing double duty or working every hour, uh, then um, there isn't much time for lobbying government. So um, I say thank you on behalf of all family caregivers for all of your efforts, and thank you for participating in this, in this program. I say thank you to, to our listeners, and uh, please get in touch with us with any comments or questions. And our next episode has people from an organization called Home Instead support, talking about the support it provides for family caregivers. Uh, thank you very much for being part of the show, and I'm looking forward to um, receiving uh, your comments um, and also your participation in the next one. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And